have it open to chapters 7 and 8, because uh, we're going to spend most of our time looking there. We're thinking about these plagues, and these plagues are dramatic, and in their drama they can distract us from their purpose. Because what we're going to see this morning is they're not just a record of disaster. What we see as these plagues unfold is really a diagram of the progress of sin and its consequences. I'm going to see what it teaches us. I want to think about two things this morning. I want to think about what do the plagues teach us, firstly? And secondly, I want to think about why don't they work? And by extension, why... Do we fail often to listen to God? Well, what do we learn about these, what do we learn from these plague accounts? We learn a couple of things. Firstly, we learn about the greatness of our God. We're going to see time and time again that God is greater than Pharaoh. That God has no rival in Egypt nor in the entire world, that none shall stand before him. And Moses, as he reflects upon this period of time where he and Aaron have gone before Pharaoh time and time again, he says this in Numbers chapter 33, verse 4, he says, They marched out defiantly in full view of all the Egyptians who were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them, for the Lord had brought judgment on their gods. God's bringing judgment against the gods of the Egyptians, against the idols of sun and soil and water, and these idols that the Egyptians have are no match for God. Have a look back there in Exodus chapter 7, verse 17. God says, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. You see, that's really where this book started. It started with that reality, with the reality of Moses coming to grips with who he was speaking to in the burning bush. They didn't come to grips with God, as Moses had come to grips with God. And the point of these plagues, and the point really of the whole book of Exodus, is to reinforce again and again this central and relentless message, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Listen to me. So firstly, the the point of the plagues really are a reminder about who God is, his majesty, his power, and that there is none like him. But secondly, we learn from these plagues the consequence of sin. See, these plagues don't strike Pharaoh, just him. Uh, they actually strike the whole of the Egyptian nation. They, and they strike the land in which the Egyptians habitat. And it's as if... As these plagues ascend, creation is undone. And Moses, as he records this account of the plagues, he knew what he was doing. He actually 
uses the language of creation as these plagues progress. In chapter 7, verse 19, we're told that the blood cooled into water. And the same word is used in Genesis chapter 1 where God pulled the waters together to form the seas. And as we see the chapters unfold in 8, 9 and 10, the frogs swarm together, insects swarm these creeping creatures. The language of Genesis again, the flies above the earth, the livestock on the land, vegetation that's crushed by the housestorm, and finally the darkness that descends upon the land shows us that sin has run its course. And after darkness, death. God, through the book of Exodus, and through Moses' opposition with Pharaoh, is reminding us of the curse. The day you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. That reality has spread. The spiritual death that that curse has brought has spread. And as we see sin increase in Pharaoh's heart, we see this creation undone. We see the world that God had brought into being in the book of Genesis, in Genesis chapters 1 and 2, we see as sin grows, we see this creation undone. The world, that's what happens. The world comes undone when sin reigns and we refuse to listen to God. So, why don't we listen? And why don't these plagues seem to work? Well, we see in the book of Exodus that Really, the Egyptian people have substituted God for idols. There's a power at work in Egypt. I don't know if you noticed that. That's perhaps what was most intriguing to me uh, as the uh, reading was read from uh, chapter 8. That the magicians have a power. They have a power to do similar things. In chapter 2, verse 22, the Egyptians, the Egyptian magici magicians did the same thing by their secret arts in turning the water into blood. And yet, in the first plague, God strikes the water. When you saw those planes crash into the Twin Towers, when... That, that, that one plane crashed into the Pentagon, there was a statement being made. These symbols of power in America were being struck, and they were being struck for a purpose. And so as God begins to bring judgment on Pharaoh, the one who has taken his people, held his people hostage, it's no coincidence that the Lord bring, begins the 12 plagues by striking the Nile itself. The Egyptians did have the gods of the water, gods of new and happy. And God is almost saying by striking this water, he's saying, is this the God you worship? 
Is this the God that you present hymns and offerings to? Then I'll turn this God into blood like that. The magicians, they do the same, or at least they do sort of the same thing. And what's interesting to notice with these, magi with these magicians is whatever power they have, uh, I, I suggest it's some form of evil power that they are drawing upon. They only have the power of imitation. And that's what we know about Satan in himself as we read the scriptures. Satan is an imitator, he's an accuser, but he's a perverter. He's an imitator, he tries to take what God would do and say, and he tries to do it in his way. You notice the irony with the magicians is that they can do the same thing that God has done, but they don't have the power to solve the problem. They don't have the power to save. There's no real power. Sorry, there is a real power, but it's dangerous. And it's not a saving power. It's a power to imitate, to pervert, to deceive, but never to save. And chapter 7, verse 24 is striking. It says there, All the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Here we have the picture of a desperate people. God has brought judgment. And these people are desperate. And perhaps their hopes of their God are dashed. And here they are, left to scrounge for life when their gods are proved impotent. That's what happens with idols. And that's why... Pharaoh refuses to believe because there's a substitute. It's a poor substitute. It's a substitute with some kind of power, but it's not a saving power. And so that's what happens with idols. Idols let you down. These kinds of gods fail you. And you know that you've made something into an idol when it feels as though the whole world has been destroyed when it lets you down. And we do this all the time. We operate believing in idols, things that have a kind of power, but it's only a kind of power, it's no power to save. Our world has idols, and our world has idols, and so they don't need God. But the idols that we make of where we live and how much money we have and who we know, well, we know that these things do ultimately disappoint. The Nile was a good thing, but the Egyptians had turned it into a god. And if you turn any good thing in your life into a god, then it will let you down. Be that a relationship, be that a career, be that this water for the Egyptians. And so we have this picture here of the Egyptians. They're angry, they're frustrated, they're despondent, they're in despair. Their gods had 
not delivered for them, and the scene ends with people frantically scurrying around the banks of the Nile, trying to just seep out some muddy water. And God is proving a point here. Chapter 7, verse 17. By this, you shall know that I am the Lord. See, many people don't believe in God. Many people think that they're doing okay. And and if we look at their lives, it, it seems as though they're doing okay. Why would they need God? But the reality is, I think, that so often in our world, people are desperate for God. They're desperate for the rivers of living water, but they're existing off that muddy water, just seeping out. What's remarkable is that we're told in chapter 8, verse 15, that after the plague of the frogs, that there was respite, that there was a break in these plagues. We read in chapter 8, verse 15, but when Pharaoh saw that there was relief, he hardened his heart and would not listen to Moses and Aaron just as the Lord had said. Here we have a picture of the disbelief of Pharaoh and the reality of what God is doing is before him. And yet, here we have a picture of the human heart, that the human heart has an incredible ability to push the reality of God away, trying to drink the dregs of muddy water and refusing in our hearts. Because sometimes the price of turning from rejecting God to worshipping him, sometimes the price just seems too high. The reality is there. And yet Pharaoh refuses to believe. Just um, on from our reading, uh, when God sends a third plague of the gnats, uh, we read in verse 19 of chapter 8, the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hard and would not listen, just as the Lord had said. The magicians can replicate the water to blood. They can try and replicate the frogs, but when they have a go at the gnats, they can't do it. And they're telling Pharaoh, this is, this is beyond us. This is a God more powerful than us. This is the finger of God. But Pharaoh, again, in the face of the facts, in the face of the very uh, curse existing before him, refuses to believe. And friends, this is a great illustration of unbelief in our world. Uh, When we talk about the Lord Jesus and we're mocked and people disagree with us, we want to marshal all these facts. We want to get all the information. And then if we get all the facts, all the information, we place it before people, then perhaps then they will believe. But we're reminded this morning that we ought to give the best reasons for people to believe in the Lord Jesus. 
But fundamentally, people will only believe in Lord Jesus if there's a supernatural work in their hearts to open their eyes. Because the human heart has capacity in its fallenness to deny truth. We do this all the time. We deny truth that's inconvenient to us. We live our lives that way. And friends, that's what we do ultimately with God. We deny the reality of God when the facts are all before us. See, Pharaoh is just not the worst guy ever. He's actually just the normal guy. He's a picture of us and our heart. But we're reminded here this morning, reminded that these gods, these Egyptian gods, are no match for the Lord. There was a goddess, Hecate, who was often pictured uh, with the head and the body of a frog. And this frog goddess in Egypt was the spouse of the created God. One commentator says that this frog goddess had two major responsibilities. One, to protect crocodiles, which would control the frog population, and two, assisting women in childbirth. And so it seems as though this god, this Egyptian goddess at least, is failing both those here. Because in our reading, you, you notice that the frogs were coming from everywhere. You read down in verse 7 in chapter 8, the magicians did the same thing by their secret arts and made the frogs come upon the land of Egypt. Of course, it's the same problem, isn't it? It's the same problem. They, all they can do is to create frogs. They cannot deal with the problem. We see in Exodus 8, verses 18 and 19, that the magicians just can't do what God is doing through Moses. I'm reminded this morning that our God is bigger. Our God is bigger than the evil that we see in our world. He's even bigger than the disbelief in our hearts. Uh, I was really interested by this line from a commentator this week. He says, It was not the great things that overwhelmed Pharaoh in chapter 7 and 8, but the little things in very large quantities. And life's kind of like that. Little things in very large quantities. A frog, a fly, a gnat, a cow, dying, you can cope with. But all of these things in large quantities were enough to drive Pharaoh mad. He refused to believe, despite all the evidence. And like so many people, he comes close to the point of acknowledging God. And then when he sees his circumstances a bit more favourable, then he changes his mind. And haven't we all done that? You know, when you're just having a terrible day and you come to God because you're feeling miserable or hurt or struggling or lost and you're so desperate for him, you make all these kinds of plans in your mind and then the next day, everything's so much better. And then we quickly forget about God. 
See, we see here that Pharaoh will do anything to get rid of these things that God places before him. And um, we see in chapter 8 that Pharaoh realises that he is, in fact, no match for Moses. And so he wants to meet some, he wants to reach some kind of arrangement with Moses in verse 25. He says, Go sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses says, I can't do it. Because your people are going to be furious. We're going to be sacrificing some bulls. And you worship bulls. It'd be like going to India and slaughtering a cow. Pharaoh wants to say, can we kind of meet halfway? But Moses refuses to do that. For Moses, there is no halfway. And this happens over and over and over again. For us, the devil and the evil one will seek to deceive us by saying, couldn't you just worship God halfway? Can't you just keep it to Sunday? Can't you just worship God, but you can be in charge of your health? Can't you just worship God, but you can be in charge of all your possessions? Halfway is no way for Moses and no way for us. Well, we're reminded this morning that the Lord God is God, and we are not. And I think... As I close, this is what Pharaoh really hated. And maybe this is what we hate too. Maybe that's what often gets us really down. That we've got questions and hurts and intellectual conundrums. And I guess all of that's fair. But that's getting to the heart. He's God. And we're not. Which means God can bring about any circumstance in our lives and anywhere in our world because he is God and we are not. And maybe that's what we find hard. And maybe at the same time that's what we just love about God. That he is God and we are not. You see, that, that statement that he is God and we, and we are not is, in one sense, so difficult. Because we can't control our lives and our world. He does. That's difficult. That's hard for us. But at the same time, he is God. if he is God and we are not, that is good news. Because that sentence can be said with disbelief. And that's maybe how Pharaoh saw it. With a kind of disgust that the Lord is God and He is not. Because He wanted to be placed upon the throne. We can say that with utter delight. But the Lord God is God and we are not. And so we don't have to meet all our needs. We can't meet all our needs. We don't have to save ourselves because we can't save ourselves. We don't have to redeem ourselves because we can't redeem ourselves. We don't have to worry about every single thing in the world because he does. We don't have to do it because he is God 
and we are not. Gets us to the very heart of our faith. Do you love it that God is God and you are not? Or is your heart hardened like Pharaoh? Do you say, I won't take this God, a God with standards, a God who brings judgment, a God with glory, because I want that power. I want that power in my life. I want that power to judge. I want that power to control. I want that power to decide. Will you say with delight, because of the Lord Jesus, that he is God and we are not. Amen. Please stand as we sing.